I can't help but to do the drums every time that intro hits. Chris Shelton, how you doing? Hey, man. Good to be here. Thanks for asking me on. I, I got to say, I'm, I'm excited about this one because Scientology has always fascinating, fascinated me very much, even more so than religion like Christianity, Catholicism. Yep. Scientology is just, it's, a, it's almost like a beast of its own. It's just so, so different. And I'm excited because you used to be a Scientologist. I was for many, many years, uh, 27 altogether. Uh, a long time. Yeah, as far as uh, actually doing it and professionally being part of it. Yeah, that was a long time, almost three decades. Wow. Yeah. So if you could uh, introduce yourself and tell sure. everyone uh, about you. Yeah, sure. Uh, my name is Chris Shelton. I am a YouTuber, author, uh, podcaster and former Scientologist, and I like to identify as the critical thinker at large um, because critical thinking is the thing that pretty much saved my existence in life uh, following my exit from Scientology. So that's what I want to be a proponent of and advocate for. So um, that's pretty much who I am and what I do in a nutshell. And uh, I was involved with Scientology for 27 years. I worked for the organization at all its levels. Um, I also partook of Scientology. I was raised with it. Um, and so I, I never really had, as a child, a, a different understanding of the world except through a Scientology lens. So, um, so getting out of that took, you know, maybe a lot longer than it should have. But, um, but that's you know, that's what happened. And I did get myself out. I didn't have to have an intervention or something like that. And, um, and it's been a road of recovery and learning and, and trying to help and teach others at the same time as I go, who are, you know, just kind of interested in following my steps of how recovery is gone and what it's consisted of and all of that. Were, if you don't mind, were you into any religion prior to Scientology? No, I, prior to Scientology for me is two years old. So oh, okay. I did go to um, a Foursquare church services, youth services, when I was in high school because a friend was a member and there was a youth group and there were girls there. And so we thought, you know, let's go. And, and of course, that didn't work out for me at all because I was totally nerdy. But... <laughs> of an interesting experience, you know, um, went to Bible camp for a weekend, you know, uh, again, a lot of girls around and, you know, not scoring at all. Um, and that was my experience with Christianity kind of up close and personal for a little while while I was in high school, but I was on the Scientology path for, for most of my life. How do, when you were on that path, how did you view or how does Scientology view other religions like Christian Christianity? Well, uh, specifically, L. Ron Hubbard talks about Christianity as, um, well, what he calls an implant, which is basically a, a, a thought, series of thoughts or ideas that are literally implanted into your head. And this is referring to implantation that occurred long, long ago before this lifetime. Uh, Scientology has the idea of multiple lives and that you right. have you know, a near infinite amount of time into the past. So Christianity, that whole set of beliefs that there's God and a Jesus, a savior figure. Hubbard said this was a, a common implant across the galaxy, that this was a way to control populations and get people thinking that they weren't all that and they were actually, you know, subservient to this higher power. 
So um, amongst many other things and all the symbology of the cross and the sacrificial figure and all that is all part of this implant. So Hubbard had some very interestingly specific things to say about that. At the same time, he said Scientology followed along in the Buddhist tradition and that it was about, you know, self-awareness and self-enlightenment you know, and escape from the endless prison cycle of life after death after life after death that we're all trapped in. So that was kind of how he explained it, which was actually a fairly stupid Western idea of what Buddhism is about rather than what it's really about. But we, right. won't, we won't go there. That's what he had to say about the topic. And he referred often to, well, somewhat often in the early days to the Vedas and the uh, Indian, you know, the, the Hindu scriptures. Okay. Um, so he talked about Scientology following in that trail of thought. So that was kind of how he positioned it and talked about other religions. So uh, just to be clear, he, he doesn't think Christianity was indoctrinated in you from when you're like from your parents. He thinks it is through past lives. Is that correct? Yeah, the, the power of the belief and the, and, the, and the fact that the belief continues generation after generation, you know, eon after eon here on Earth is an indication that, you know, and everybody has bought into it. I mean, you know, you, a, a good chunk of the planet is Christian more than uh, any other religion, if I right. If I'm right. So, um, you know, and despite all the various denominations, they all have the same core values and beliefs. Otherwise, it's really not Christianity. So... So that set of ideas that sort of form the core of it is what he said was implanted so many years ago as a control mechanism. And so when you are taught or indoctrinated as a child, you'll take to that indoctrination that much faster because, you, the, the, you know, your, your mind is already fertile. You know, it's already been fertilized and ready for this message. Ah. Right. And you've already experienced this for thousands of years and maybe on other planets, you know, millions of years. So this is a, you know, this, this whole core set of ideas of what Christianity is and what it represents is the implant. And this includes very specific things like angels and demons and cherub figures and, you know, trumpets and all kinds of fun stuff. So, um, so he really kind of, he had a real thing about Christianity. <laughs> he did not like it. You know, does 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 he think Christianity? So Christianity, according to him, isn't from Earth. It is additionally from other planets. Yes. Yes. I did not know that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's uh, he, the mythology or the cosmology of Scientology is very involved. It is it is incoherent in some places in that there are huge questions, big, huge logic holes left open. It's not an integrated whole. It's not been side-checked or gone over or anything like that. It's like it's, you know, he'll he'll throw a couple sentences out about, you know, some some stuff that's going on on some other planet somewhere in the universe. And he just drops pa passing message, you know, uh, mention of it and then goes on with the lecture. And <laughs> that's all you get. And you're like, okay. And then he'll do another lecture another time you know, a couple of years later, where he'll go into all this detail about something that happened on a particular planet uh, and what was going and the implants and the stuff that were going on there. And then that's all you get. And then and then another lecture a few years later, he's talking about how Egypt and the pyramids used to be a spaceport 
And there were battles going on here between invader forces that would come to Earth and fight it out and duke it, you know, duke it out with each other. And then that's all you get in that lecture. Then he's off on some other topic. So it was like disparate bits of information that you, as a Scientologist, have to combine and put together yourself to understand this bigger picture that he's kind of painting over the years of what's gone on in this universe. It's and it was difficult. It took years and years for me to put together all the pieces that I did. And I'm sure I missed more information in other lectures because I didn't I never had access to all <laughs> 5,000 plus of them, you know. So uh, I never got a chance to listen to all of them. But, wow. me, so but I, I listened to a lot. He, the way you're describing him, it sounds like ADHD meets pathological or compulsive liar meets active imagination like that to yeah. me is all i hear right now yeah he was he was really something else um he was you know people make a lot of mention about him being a sci-fi writer well the fact of the matter is he was a writer across all genres he wrote western detective you know all of it so um so it wasn't just you know that you would that you would think of him as this like you know you, you'd come into this thinking, oh, wow, here's a guy who's really got this crazy imagination. Now look at all this crap he's telling us. This must be out of his imagination, too. As a Scientologist, you clearly differentiate his fiction from the discoveries of Scientology, because that's how he positions it. It's all discoveries. It's not his imagination running wild. It's what he discovered. Interesting. That's yeah. how, how do you mentally, like separate those two like a science fiction writer to scientific discoveries like how do people separate those well actually um if you look at the time period that hubbard came from the pulp fiction era and the and the world war ii post-world war ii era almost all of the very successful names of science fiction whose names we still remember isaac asimov ray bradbury arthur c Clarke. These people had science backgrounds if they weren't straight up engineers or scientists. Robert Heinlein, these were people who are still, they're the icons of science fiction, but they were scientists. Hubbard wasn't, but he was pals with some of these guys. He and Heinlein hung out a lot, for example. I think Asimov saw through his bullshit pretty fast, but um, but Heinlein thought he was a great old guy, you know, but everybody knew he was a pathological liar, too. I mean, nobody, he was the guy you didn't lend money to, right? After ah, okay. Times. That was Hubbard, right? But he was vicious with his criticism. You couldn't you couldn't be around him and be in his inner circle and be critical of his writing. He'd, he'd rip you a new one. So um, that was the world he came out of. So him writing about science was true to form to what the other writers of the time were doing. So that's why people didn't really question it too much. And uh-huh. he learned that as a Scientologist. Hubbard, you know, names drops these guys all the time, right? So, right. so you learn this and you learn about that culture, which is now 70 years old. So it's not really broad knowledge now, but that's how it used to be. Okay. Yeah. Um, is it true? Uh, question from Cynthia. Did he write a few Star Trek episodes? No. Or is that no. Okay. Hubbard definitely did not write Star Trek episodes. Okay. Um, okay. So let me uh, try and get back onto some of the questions. Uh, we already answered how you got started in Scientology, but what OT level did you reach? I did not. I reached the level of clear. Clear. Uh, yeah. Okay. Clear is clear is the gateway 
to the OT levels. You have to get to clear first. So and, you were in it 25 years and you only, I'm sorry, 27 years and you yeah. didn't even reach OT? Yeah, that's right. I worked for the organization and that's a whole object lesson in itself in how Scientology treats its own people because, you know, getting them up to OT is the last priority they have for their own workers. I spent 17 years in the C organization, the highest level organization in Scientology, and I didn't make one step of progress on that bridge to total freedom, the, the, the series of indoctrination steps that you do to become spiritually free and, and personally immortal, I, I, didn't, uh, I didn't get those steps done then because I was too busy working all the time. Yeah, but don't they, they, they make you work like, from my understanding, like borderline slave labor, like a ridiculous number of hours a week. Is that yeah, true? Yeah, not even borderline. It actually just straight up is. I worked 8.30, 8, 8, 8.30 in the morning, sometimes significantly earlier, but, you know, generally speaking about 8 in the morning until 11.30 at night, midnight, 1 a.m., 2 a.m., could be 3 a.m. Every Thursday for eight years, we were up until 4 a.m., um, just on the Thursday nights, right? Um, so the schedule was insane. Half hour for lunch, half hour for dinner in between those times. Daily, you know, a series of musters throughout the day to keep track of you and make sure you're not going AWOL or anything. Mm-hmm. And um, no breaks. You're working or you're studying Hubbard. You do, you do that for two and a half hours uh, sometimes. You get study time sometimes. But there's always some kind of emergency or vital situation or fire to put out. And, and whatever job you're on, you have to go go deal with that. I'm, I mean, figuratively. I don't mean they're, they're firefighters, you know. But you have these crazy work demands and the in the environment and culture of of the sea org especially is like a call center or a boiler room it's that kind of intensity like you're supposed to be you know on 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 and if you're not there are consequences there could be physical consequences of punishment or disciplinary actions like getting hit yeah that happened i got hit a couple times um there's uh you know drop and give me 20 take a lap um, you're up until four in the morning washing dishes because that's punitive. You know, there's all kinds of uh, physical demands that can be made of you or disciplinary actions that can be taken if you're not getting the production. And uh, and that's what it's all about is getting the production because we're saving the world and we got to, you know, if if you're if you're slacking off, then you're not saving the world. Right. Is it is it true or is this a rumor that they would go as far as making people lick uh, a attempt to make them lick up a bathroom clean. Um, Yeah. That's something I heard once Um, as, as bad as things got, they never got that bad for me that I had to, that I was told to go lick the floor. Um, I was directing people on, you know, cleaning bathrooms with toothbrushes. I mean, we, we pulled that crap. But um, but no, that was that was a very specific instance, I think, with a celebrity who had um, upset Tom Cruise and upsetting Tom Cruise is a really, really big mistake in Scientology. It's one you don't want to make. I've heard that. And I, 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 I have trouble wrapping. I like I understand it, but I have trouble wrapping my mind around it because he almost at least on the small things I've seen him say. He mm-hmm. sounds like a man of action. Like if mm-hmm. he sees someone in danger, he's going to help them. Like he seems mm-hmm. like he wants to be a protective person. 
Mm-hmm. But then on this flip side, he has what this like vindictive nature if you speak out against him. Yeah. And that's a lot to do with Scientology's influence on him as well. Scientology creates a narcissistic head, you know, headspace. Uh, like, I, I mean, just trust me, it does. You get very arrogant. You're told continually how special and important you are because you're a Scientologist. You're, you know, if you're a Scientology um, counselor or auditor, Hubbard says you're in the upper 10th of the upper, the upper 20th of the upper 10, no, the upper 10th of the upper 20th <laughs> of the humans of the human race. Right. That's like, like you're way up there. Um, you're, you're the special people. You're the ones who are saving the world. You're the ones who have this, you know, the sacred knowledge and all of that. So, um, so you're constantly being pumped up just because you're a Scientologist. And then the more you contribute to Scientology, you know, monetarily time, effort, et cetera, the more status you can get, the more recognized you are and the more sure within this bubble, social hierarchy that's created in that that culture the more sure you know you are that you're special and right and tom cruise is at the top of that hierarchy right next to or below uh david miscavige not in terms of not in terms of running the organization but in terms of status within the organization if that makes sense yes so he really has no reason to leave because they they oh. absolutely adore and love him. Oh yeah, it would really surprise me if he up and left one day. And if he did, it would be pretty catastrophic for Scientology, but even that wouldn't necessarily end it, but it would certainly be a, a huge blow. But I don't see it happening because Scientology services Tom Cruise's needs in ways that nobody else does or or will. And I, I don't want to stay on Tom Cruise because I'm sure you have to talk about him a lot, but I do have uh, two questions. One, did you ever meet him? No, not him. Met okay. other celebrities, but not. I was always, I said this before, I was always like 10 or 15 minutes away from meeting him. I always okay. just late to the part. Oh, he was just here? What? You know, <laughs> like, like that kind of thing would happen. I think about three times that happened. And is it true they will find partners for him? They tried one time. That's how um, Katie eventually came along. Um, yeah, it was a search. I. It was funny because I actually observed it happening when it was happening and didn't know what it was. And neither did any of the people who were working on it at the level that we were at. We, we thought we were on a model search or they, the guys who were doing it. I was said I was just sitting in the room one day and they were going over all these pictures of, of Scientology women models. And there were some, <laughs> some pretty good women. It was like, Jesus, what is this for? And they were like, some kind of model search for, you know, a film or something. That's creepy. That's that, so creepy. Well, that would have been a usual sort of thing that they would do. I mean, they do produce in-house training films and dissemination properties. So you want good-looking people. So it, it really wasn't that creepy and weird that it was that the work that was being done for the reasons that they thought they were doing it for, it was when I, it was only after I got out that I found out, Oh my God, that was when they were looking for Tom Cruise's mate. Right. <laughs> and you know, sure enough, they, they found a couple. And in fact, that girl, the woman who uh, was doing the, the tongue licking, if I, if, if, if it's what I remember, right. If I'm remembering this correctly, then um, she was being punished for, you know, having um, she, Went out with Tom Cruise. They were hitting it off. And then one night she had this headache and she just was just killing her. And she was like, no, I don't want to go out and all this. And it really pissed him off. And then suddenly they weren't going out anymore. And suddenly she was in Clearwater, Florida, 
scrubbing toilets, you know? So, um, yeah, that's, that's what it's like to get close to Tom Cruise. Wow. Yeah. Um, to, to backtrack a little bit, if, if I recall, uh, on one of your talks, you said that at the absolute most you ever got paid for a week of those, was it 16 hour shifts? It was 150 bucks. Is that correct? That was when I was in Santa Barbara. Um, I, there's three levels of involvement in Scientology, which is general public who pay for their services, folks, excuse me, there's staff members, like when, like what I became when I started working at the city level church of Scientology in Santa Barbara, California. And I did that for eight years. And I call them city level churches within the, within the Scientology world. They're not called churches. They're called orgs. For, or- oh, yeah, or, for organization, right? Okay. And so those are what are called class five organizations. They have different levels in their, their structural hierarchy of organizations. And class five organizations are able to take you to the level of clear, and they're able to train you to be a counselor for Scientology. Uh, what's called an auditor in Scientology. I really shouldn't say counselor. So that's what that level church can do. And the one there's one here in Denver. There's one in Santa Barbara where I work. There's one in, you know, it's various cities around the world. Then you have the next higher level up, which is the C organization. And that was where I ended up and where I worked for another 17 years. And they're the guys who deliver the OT levels. They're entrusted with the confidentiality of all that material they are the ones who produce all the dissemination properties, promotional properties. They uh, manage the churches around the world, which is what I did for eight years as a Sea Org member when I first got there. On your so billion-year contract? What, what's that? On your billion-year contract? Yeah, that's right. That's right. I served out 17 years on my billion-year contract. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's such yeah. a ridiculous concept. Yeah. Well... Uh, if you consider, I mean, it is, but if you can just, I only, I only clarify these things just so y'all get the headspace, not because of I'm course. trying to rationalize this, right? No, please it rationalize is. <laughs> But if you consider that you are immortal, and I mean literally immortal, you can't die. There is no way to kill you as a spiritual being, right? And you have lived billions, trillions of years in this universe. It's way older than science thinks it is. So according to L. Ron Hubbard, so it must be true, right? So if you think all that's true, then a billion years is a slice of eternity. What's true? Right? So that's the headspace that you could sign something like that in, in good conscience and think you're actually doing something that makes sense. Uh, Cynthia, no, he uh, he's not joking. There is billion-year contracts. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it, it Literally, you can look it up on the internet, actually. You can see the contract. It's a simple one page. It is not a legally binding document. It is. It, it holds no real weight except as a symbolic commitment, but it is for a billion years. Yes. Um, uh, when going back to when there was punishment, as I recall, they have like these camps they send you to if you yep. act too inappropriately. Yep. And is it true that, for instance, they'll force you to stay awake a ridiculous number of hours, barely feed you, and essentially treat you like less than human? Are those reports exaggerated? Uh, no, but there are two different things that are being talked about there. 
Okay. Um, and they are often conflated or confused. And it makes sense because it's, you know, you'd have to kind of have the understand the minutiae of how the how the whole thing works in order to separate them out. There is a thing called the hole, uh, which is an invention of David Miscavige's. And that existed only at a particular at a particular location in San Jacinto, California, called the Gold Base. And that was where he took the very highest inner circle of his managers and executives, the people who were literally running Scientology internationally. He put them into a set of double wide trailers and treated them like POWs. I mean, it was bad. And this went on for months, years. um, And it was it was bad. And it wasn't you know, there was, it's an inconsistent series of behaviors. It's not like every day they all got hosed down and every day this happened and that happened. It was new stuff every other day. You know, it was just him wetting his sick appetite on these people. And there are a number of testimonials that lay out what happened and who, what happened to who and when. So, um, of the people who escaped this place, right? So this was the whole and it was all contained in a double wide set of trailers with bars on the windows, guards on the door. You know, they were treated very, very badly. They had to sleep in there. Um, it was, you know, this is what's talked about in the Going Clear documentary that that Lawrence Wright and uh, great documentary. Yeah, it's the best two. If you want a two hour encapsulation of the culture of Scientology, that's it. Um, it's, it, that's the only thing that's really come close it, to, to being able to encapsulate it in such a small amount of time. Right. I, I do my best to describe this stuff, but it shows it too. And you get a number of different people talking about their experiences with it. Um, Leah's show, Scientology and the Aftermath, expanded on that. It took that and it went, okay, here's a lot more information about this. And that's the, that's the beauty of that show. So, um, okay, so that's the whole and then you have the RPF, the Rehabilitation Project Force. Okay. okay. That has been in existence since 1974. It was a Hubbard-invented program. Uh, it, there are various claims that it was invented by Sea Org members under Hubbard's suggestions or approval. Okay. It depends on who you listen to. Um, but I believe it was Hubbard's invention. And if maybe he suggested it to other people who are now you know, or later afterwards said, yeah, it was our idea. No, it was clearly Hubbard's. And the idea was to rehabilitate uh, failing or uh, flunking Sea Org members. This was only Sea Org. Mm-hmm. Public do not do this ever. Staff at the city level churches do not do this program ever. It is only for the Sea Org. Okay. Okay, it's really, and, I, and people conflate these things. And that's why I'm trying to differentiate them. So I did the RPF. It took me three years to get it done. And it is a set of, of steps that you have to do. Uh, auditing actions, things you have to address in your past lives and stuff. They're looking for your evil intentions. Things that cause you to screw up or make bad decisions or act maliciously. You get put there on the RPF. You're assigned to it as a Sea Org member because you screwed up in a fairly significant way. It, it's not just a daily punishment. It is an entire program that once you're there, you don't get out until you're done. And I knew a couple of people who were there for 10 years trying to get through that program. 
it's it's it could take an incredibly long time. Uh, three years was a was a a fairly shortish, averageish period of time compared to, you know, what some people endured. I mean, I, I knew guys who were there for five or six years. So that's a long time because you are sequestered on the RPF away from the rest of the crew. The the Sea Org is a paramilitary outfit, which is why I use these kind of military terms. Um, they're uniform, there's ranks, ratings, yes, sir, no, sir, how high, sir, all that kind of stuff. So the disciplinary actions that occur there are a lot stricter. And the RPF is sort of the ultimate disciplinary action. It's a rehabilitation program in the same way that a Maoist re-education camp is, you know, a university. I mean, it's right. it, it's not that at all, but those are the words that are used. It's very Orwellian, right? And it is hard physical labor for eight to 10 to 12 hours, 12, about 12 hours a day. And then it's five hours of redemption time where you're working with another person to get through these steps of this program. The physical work is not on the program. The physical work is what you're doing to make up the damage for why you're there in the first place to the Sea Org. So you're working your ass off. And I mean, by hard physical labor, I mean, um, you know, re-asphalting or, or retarring roofs, sandblasting buildings, you know, painting, building, uh, grounds work of a very significant nature, you know, setting up events in the hot sun, you know, in Los Angeles, this kind of thing. So a lot of varied kind of work, but all of it grueling hard work. Right. And you have to run everywhere you go. There's no walking on the RPF. If you're caught walking, drop and give me 20, right? Wait, now. you have, literally you have to run? Run. Not walk. Yeah. What right? kind of shit is that? Unless you're literally too old, right? I mean, I saw, it, you know, like a couple of people who were in their 60s and 70s on this program and they had to fast walk, right? Because they, you know, just bodies just couldn't deal with that kind of punishment for, you know, years on end. So, yeah, no, it's run everywhere. You got it. You are there at the, uh, it, it is only the kindness and grace of the Sea Org by which you are there, you see. You owe the Sea Org for what you did to get yourself there. So you better be running to get through this program. We better see a fixed, dedicated glare coming out of your eyes that you are intent and on purpose to get through this program, right? And, and it's is it true that, you know, someone could literally be at the end of their rope, so to speak, but even if someone came out and said, look, you can leave right now, come with me, they still wouldn't leave. Is that? Wait, no, probably not. Not not in that way, right? Um, I wanted to leave desperately many, many, many times. But I was faced with the fact that I would not have any more friends because by the time you're in the Sea Org, you ain't got no friends in the outside world. You don't have any means of contact. You're, you know, It's not like you can just chat on the phone. This is not a nine to five job. You're going to home, you know, you're going back to your dorm room because the way it's dorm style living, right? So all the guys are in dorms with beds three or four high. If you get married, then you get to have sex and then you get a room. <laughs> That's You get a couple's room. You don't get an apartment. You get a room. That's your place to live. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's common area, uh, showers and bathrooms. I mean, it's very... It's a rigorous lifestyle. It's very comp comparable. The only way I can I can compare the lifestyle is kind of like a, it's like monastic. It's like you're that isolated from things and it's that grueling of a life. So 
that's your that's already your life as a Sea Org member. Now we're going to sequester you away from the rest of the crew, and you don't get to talk to any of the crew unless they're unless they speak to you first. You're you're dressed in gray and black clothes to 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 separate you from everybody else, and nobody's going to mistake you for anything other than somebody who's on the RPF. You have to slink around the base and not be seen by other people. So you're going at odd hours to places to do your work. And they always go in teams. Nobody's ever by themselves because people, you know, can take off. So uh, you're always under kind of a watch sort of system. And you're there working with another person who is called your twin. And you guys work together. So he's working on you. You're working on him or her. And you got to get through the steps of this program. And it's an extensive series of steps involving a lot of confession of a lot of sins in this life and past lives, all to get, you know, your evil intentions rooted out of you. So you'll be a good little Sea Org member. So the idea is to put you through such hell <laughs> and re-indoctrinate you in so much of Hubbard's nonsense. Yeah. <laughs> That you are, you come out the other end of this program, broken down, beaten, and then built back up as this beautiful Sea Org member who's, you know, yes, sir, no, sir, how high, sir. That's the purpose of that program. And um, it took everything I had to get through that program. It was, it was pure torture from beginning to end. I just don't have any other words for it. How do you not have higher suicide rates? Like, I, I mean, that just because how you're describing it sounds pretty horrific. Well, it is pretty bad. And if somebody starts getting suicidal, they get put under watch. And they get okay. dealt with, right, with Scientology. Now, they actually just get rid of you as fast as they can. They don't, <laughs> they don't want wow. that on their property, right? So if, you're, if you start saying you want to commit suicide, it, literally, that is the 24-hour ticket out of there. But you have to convince them you mean it. Because it's also a very easy way out if you don't mean it, right? So uh, they want to make sure that you really mean it. And so um, I saw a guy joking one time. There was a guy who was under watch because of this. He was claiming to be suicidal. And he actually took a dive out of the out of a, a second or third story window. Ended up breaking his wrists um, trying to get away, right? Or trying to kill himself. We don't really know which. This was years and years ago. Um, I, I only heard about this from a distance, right? But then there was a meeting with a very senior person, not David Miscavige, but somebody who would have been in his organization and his crew, who said, uh, yeah, these, you know, fuck these suicide guys. These suicide guys, ugh, they're just a bunch of, they're just full of it. He goes, you know what you do? You take them up to the top floor, you open up the window and you go, okay, you want to kill yourself? Do it. Let's see it. I want to see it. Go ahead. Yeah, that's what I thought. Shut up. Like that was his attitude about people who were suicidal, right? So this is not a group of people who are into dealing with your problems or your trauma or your stresses. It is you park that shit and you get your job done. That's the attitude of the Sea Org. What a bunch of assholes. Yeah. I it's mean, I knew it was bad, but I didn't know, like, they viewed suicide. Like, I know they, they're against psychiatrists or psychology um, of, all, of all forms, correct? Yeah. Okay. Very, very much so. I hate it. Oh, that, that really is frustrating. After everything I just told you, get this. Psychiatry and psychology are bad because they're barbaric. 
How are they barbaric? Uh, oh, electric. are you kidding me? Well, okay. Well, again, in all fairness, right? Back up, 1950. Okay. 1950 psychiatry? Was barbaric. <laughs> I mean, they were doing transorbital leucotomies, lobotomies, electric shock, straight up, no painkillers. You know what I mean? They were doing some grisly stuff. Okay. Hubbard was not totally off the rails in his critique of psychiatry, but his reasoning and his motivation for it was completely fucking psychotic. He <laughs> He was just a very vindictive guy, and he did. And like I mentioned earlier, he would he would just you know annihilate anybody who who criticized his work, even in writer circles way before Scientology. He'd brag about this stuff in his lectures. That's how I know he did it. He 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 would brag about it. So this attitude, this vindictiveness, um, was baked into the policies of Scientology. It's literally built into its DNA to be a reflection of Hubbard's personality. So. Sea Org members, all Scientologists in a way, are trying to become L. Ron Hubbard or more Hubbard-like. And that it would include, you know, his vindictive nature towards certain targets and certainly towards psychology and psychiatry because they are irredeemably evil and must be destroyed. There is no saving it, reforming it, salvaging it. It's just got to go. And that kind of extremist thinking is something you might be familiar with now, yeah. <laughs> you know, a little bit. There's a little bit of that happening in our society right now. I talked about that in my live stream this morning. But in, Sci in Scientology, it's a constant and it's unquestioning and there is no, uh, you know, there's no questioning that party line. They've got DVDs, you know, documentaries about how bad psychiatry it is. They call it an industry of death. Yeah, they hate it. Sounds like it. Yeah. But I guess, I mean, I guess if it was from back then, I could un somewhat understand the hate hatred for it. But I would think they would have evolved since then. Uh, I except guess not. For the, except for the fact that most of Scientology's writings come out of the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Because that's when Hubbard wrote it all. Right. And those that's the dogma. That's thats the faith. thats Those are the scriptures. And time and you know culture evolving those are the truths right same way right. Leviticus is the truth to some people that's yeah. that's the written word and it will always be true and man's you know changing cultures is just his nonsense this is the truth right and that's how Scientologists consider Hubbard's writings Oh, sorry, I just heard. Yeah, yeah, I heard that noise there. Yeah, yeah, it sounded like an explosion right outside of my house. Yeah, I hope everything's okay there. I hope so too. Um, jumping back a little bit, I want to get to uh, to Kristen's question, uh, best name's question. Yeah. Um, d d don't you have to tell them all your secrets? Now that goes into both in auditing and when you're in punishment, right? Like they try and pry everything they like, every dark thing you've ever thought or done out of you, so they can then. Although they don't tell you this, they can use it against you at a later time. Is that, is it's yeah, it serves a lot of functions. There's a lot going on there with confession. It's one of Lifton's eight criteria for thought reform, um, and it is a powerful, powerful emotional and weapon and uh, psychological weapon um, to wield against people, right? Because if you, um, you know, there is a great deal of relief 
that a person will just kind of experience when they give up, you know, immoral acts that they consider they've, you know, that they've committed. Right. Um, and there's power in being the person who's receiving that knowledge. It's a trust factor there. There's a there's a faith that you're going to hold on to that, right? Um, and in and further, because Scientology is a religion. And the ministers of Scientology, these auditors, have the power to forgive. So when you're in a confessional in Scientology, and they call it a confessional, even though it's not at all like like Catholic confessionals. When you're in there giving up your sins, right? When you're talking about your immoral acts, um, there will be a process where you will have this forgiveness step done. Um, in many, many circumstances. And that has a psychological impact because here's this authority figure that you are now granting the authority to forgive you. Right. I mean, you have to grant them that power before they can do it, right? So you're acknowledging the senior moral authority and position of this person. So there's a lot going on just on a one-on-one. Now you put a whole organization there which has its own spy network and a snitch culture which Scientology absolutely is. It, they report on each other all the time with written reports. Hubbard's got policy about this. So you add that into the mix, and now you get you know this Orwellian structure, which can right. revisit your sins on you, right? If you start getting out of line, or you start towing, you know, not not towing the party line or something, um, they're not going to be so bold as to start pulling out you know, you, the, the ream of things you wrote down or the stuff that was recorded in your, in your confidential auditing sessions, they're not going to be so brazen as to go, well, here it is. He looks like you got a problem with the uh, little girls, huh? Yeah. Well, I guess you better not be uh, making too much noise about what you've done seen here. You know, it's not, it, it's not like that. Okay. Okay. It's, um, it's more like, if you start speaking up publicly against Scientology, that information is going to end up on a website somewhere with your name on it. Uh, and the really bizarre thing is it's not even going to be exactly what you said. They're going to twist it to make it even worse. I mean, the, the website they put up on me is a joke when it comes to the actual truth of the situation that you know that they are telling that they're telling the world I'm such a bad person about right which has to do with uh, my son in Australia and child support because I was working for the church I was making 20 bucks a week they don't tell you that no so you know so there's a lot of omitted and a lot of other stuff thrown into the mix but they will not hesitate to use that information against you in a very public way if you you know, go outside the church and start talking trash about it. That, that's where it comes into play. They don't blackmail you with it to keep you in. Ah, okay. Okay, that's not how it works. They they get you with it if you step out and start talking trash. If you step out and just disappear, they, they, you know, okay. they'll try to find you. They'll try to get you back. I did that work for a long time. I went knocking on doors and, hey, you used to do some classes. How about you do some more? What were you into it for, et cetera? Try to talk the guy back in. I, I, I got pretty good at that. But if you turn 
that's when you're an enemy and that's when you're they're authorized according to their policies to come after you are, are you referring to the uh, fair game policy yep exactly what i'm referring to that, you are you're not you're no longer labeled fair game that's not a term that's used in scientology hasn't been for a long time but the practice of it has never stopped they just don't call it that anymore but that's that is what it is why do you think they try and deny that when it's so prevalent that they come after other people? Like why, why even lie? Like when you have camera video cameras of someone following you, like just be like, yeah, we are following you. I, I don't, I, it just doesn't make like, why lie about it? I know it doesn't make a lot of sense. That's the problem with cults is that they, <laughs> it kind of melts people's minds in some ways. Right. Um, the self, the lack of self-awareness of Scientology as an organization to the world at large. I mean, I was blown away. I had no idea when I was a Sea Org member, how the world actually thought of us. I had no idea. Really? I thought we were way more well thought of. I had no idea how toxic Scientology had had as a name. And I got out in 2000. Uh, 13 is pretty much the year when I, you know, left the Sea Org and then fully got out of Scientology. It took me about a year for the whole thing to happen. But um, that year was a real eye opener for me because I didn't know. I thought, you know, Scientologists are treated to multiple events a year where David Miscavige will stand on the stage and he will show them graphs and charts of expansion. Scientology is just getting bigger and bigger. And they will show videos of public officials, mayors, you know, state representatives, city council members, you know, leaders of various, um, I don't know, you know, lobby groups or special interest groups or something that might align with Scientology, um, talking, you know, beneficially, you know, praising Scientology, talking about how great it is. So you get this idea through this indoctrination that we're great. Everybody loves us. We're doing beautiful work out there. Why are these people attacking us? They're crazy. I mean, obviously, you'd have to be crazy to attack us. Look at all the good work we're doing. Well, then you get out in the real world. You get out of that bubble. I got out of it. And I started looking, you know, at what was really going on out there and what science. And I started, I had the ability to suddenly fact check all those events I'd gone to. And look up those public officials and look up these statistics they were showing us and found out it was all smoke and mirrors. All of it. None wow. of it. Right? Sure, they could get these little blurbs out of these public officials and they were real public officials, but they'd been conned and swindled too. That sometimes they didn't even know what they were talking, you know, which organization they were endorsing. It was bizarre. You find retractions. You find people, you know, oh my God, that was for Scientology. I didn't know that. You know, because some of their front groups don't use the word Scientology. They use way to happiness or applied scholastics <laughs> or uh, Narconon or Criminon. These are all Scientology front groups. So you get public officials endorsing a Criminon program to help criminals in prison, not knowing it has anything to do with the Church of Scientology. But then that video is shown at the events for the Church of Scientology and all the Scientologists are like, and they, you know, shut up and take my money, right? They, <laughs> they think this is beautiful and that Scientology is gaining all this broad public acceptance. And it's not. 
and it it was it was a, a real eye opener for me to learn all of that. I had no idea, amongst many other things I didn't know about, you know. But I I had no idea. So I I came out of that bubble world to find out that there is this you know disgusting black layer of awfulness all over it, and the rest of the world can see it, and I couldn't. Because we were being given a whole different set of information than what the real truth that everybody out here has. That's fascinating. I actually had no idea about these other organizations as covers for Scientology. Yeah. Oh, a lot of front groups. Yeah. Big I mean, time. it makes sense why they would do that because Scientology doesn't exactly have the most positive name. So I could see, exactly. uh, I could see why they would do that. But man, that's so dishonest. Yeah. It's really bad. And, you know, and I wish I could say Scientology was the only group out there doing that. Uh, yeah, you find out there's a lot of cults out there. And, you know, Scientology is actually one of the smaller ones comparatively. Um, they got big noise. They got big celebrities. But they have a lot of money, though, too, though, don't they? They do. Um, but com again, comparatively, I mean, the, the Mormons outstrip Scientologists on every metric. Really? They legitimately have millions of members, right? Scientology doesn't. That's oh, Scientology. yeah, that's true. A couple, couple, you know, a few thousand, right? About, you know, about, what, 30, 30 40,000. The Mormons are millions. The Mormons have more money accumulated from interest that they're earning every year on their damn bank accounts than Scientology's making I know, uh, by a long shot. So it's all a matter of scale, you know? Right. All the mechanisms are all the same, but the scale. Is it true that from, so uh, is it OT8 or OT9 that's the highest? Eight. Eight's the eight. highest that's released. And wasn't eight, like, that came out after Ron Hubbard passed away, right? Like, didn't David Miscavige do eight or something? Well, it was, you know, who wrote it is probably a guy named Ray Midoff. But, um, yeah, it was released in 1988, and Hubbard died in, uh, what, 86? January 86? Okay. Yeah. And now to go from, let's say, entry level to eight, is it true it can be up to or more than $500,000? Yeah, absolutely. That's a that's a lowball number to get there. That's a lowball? Yeah, yeah, because you're going to get hit up the entire time for, for donations, uh, for services and not for services. They're all just straight donations, right? We're saving the world. We need your money, right? Uh, in addition to paying for the services themselves. And sometimes you'll be, you know, kind of uh, knuckled into it, you know, into giving over donations and stuff, especially if you've been, con you know, confessing some sins and you've got some amends to do. You've got to make up for some of the bullshit that you confessed, right? So now, okay, you know, it's not it's not a whole lot different than those old, um, what they call those things? The, uh, the Catholic... Uh, Tides? No, but it was it, it, you could pay for the sins that you. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, there was, I, I don't remember that part. I'm forgetting right now, but um, yeah, God, it's right on the tip of my tongue. Anyway, um, it's like that. They'll pressure you into that because the I haven't. I maybe I should have said this at the very outset, but catechism. No, not catechism. Uh, indulgences, Catholic indulgences. Oh, okay. Okay, that's the term. Um. Scientology is a money-making scam, just to be super clear. Like a pyramid scheme, right? Well, or an MLM? Exactly. It doesn't really fit the definition. I'm actually deep in on, on MLMs right now. Um, these 
<laughs> actually have it right here. This is all MLM stuff. Um, it is a bit different than a pyramid scheme, but um, there is a there is a commission system within Scientology that might border on a pyramid scheme. But Scientology is just a con. You know, it's selling you a dream and it is um, selling you personal immortality. It's a subjective state of mind. So they get to basically tell you anything they want as to which level you've achieved, when you've achieved it, and how much you have to pay to get to the next level. Right there, They hold all the cards. So you got to jump through all the hoops that they tell you to jump through to achieve OT8. And it takes years to get there. Even if you walked in there with, you know, $10 million, they, they need the time to indoctrinate you. Okay. And that, that, that takes time. Nobody's going to be hearing about Xenu in the first six months, you know, even <laughs> in the first year, that would be hard to do. It's level OT3, is that correct? Yeah, that's OT3. That's right. And is it true that um, they, they, one, will deny the whole Xenu story, mm -hmm. and two, they don't tell it to you early because you'll go crazy from reading it is that correct you'll you'll die from oh from you'll die opposed to it yeah uh, <laughs> yeah it's, a, <laughs> it's so it's, stupid i'm I, sorry i know that sounds mean Scientology, but well you know it's okay i get it um it, it, i wish scientology were alone in that i mean are you aware of the confidential mormon scriptures i am not oh you're gonna have a fun time learning about those <laughs> that you learned about Scientology. I was shocked. I had no idea the Mormons had confidential information I. and rituals and practices and stuff. Yeah, they do. There's stuff that goes on in temple that <laughs> us mortal men don't know much about, right? Uh, us non-Mormons. Non um, okay, but as far as Scientology goes, yes, that is the belief. You will get there and um, the OT3 narrative or the Xenu narrative as I call it, is this you know kind of interesting, complicated story is laid out on South Park, if you've seen that, in cartoon version. Um, that's part of the story. It's really not even the whole thing, but it's part of it. And and it's pretty interesting, pretty crazy sci-fi story of a of a intergalactic genocide, you know, um, which resulted in conditions on Earth being as screwed up as they are for all the years that that is that has gone on since then, 75 million years, I think. And so here we are today, you know, in this screwed up state because of this thing that happened back then. But the trap of it is, as Hubbard explains it, is that because it was so awful, because this genocide was so um, of such importance, it was it was sort of sealed off in our memories. And we can't access it. And this is also another place where the whole Christian implant was reinforced, where the concept of having to um, have sex in order to make more bodies and how important that is and how we obsess over sex, all of that was implanted during this whole Xenu narrative time period. So Hubbard blames a lot, in fact, pretty much all of society's ills on this narrative on this time period. He said, all this other crap happened to you all up, up and down the time track, you know, going back four quadrillion years, all this crazy crap has happened to you. But this incident in particular was seminal to everything that's wrong with Earth today. And it because it's sort of memory locked, um, because it's so powerful and so 
you know, important to the controllers. Um, that's why you can't access it. And it's been booby trapped. So if you do somehow break that seal or get through those memory traps somehow, which Hubbard says is basically impossible, then you will be booby trapped to get pneumonia and die within two or three days. Your body will just wear itself out. That's the story, man. I know it's pretty, pretty crazy. I'm trying not to laugh. I really am because I never want to laugh at somebody else's beliefs. I want to be as open as possible, but it's really hard to take some of that stuff seriously. I know. I know it is. Uh, And only, and only really because it's so full of so many logic holes. If you break down the Xenu narrative in terms of what Hubbard actually said and start breaking it down against science, you know, the thing falls apart very rapidly. Even if you, even if you sort of negate a lot of science, like let's say you take geology and you just go, okay, screw it. Let's say that planet earth is that old and there was life on earth that long ago, right? 75 million years ago and et cetera, et cetera, right? Even if you grant that, he still says stuff in the materials that are just patently false. Um, like naming Alpha Centauri as the North Star, right? Uh, 75 million years ago, that was impossible. The sky looked completely different. So there, the North Star would have been a, a different star, right. literally, right? So you wouldn't, it wouldn't be the same one. Um, you know, and then not to mention the fact that there is zero physical evidence for any of the things that he's talking about as far as volcanoes blowing up and nuclear winds and all this other nonsense. So but it's literally just made up. Oh, totally. Like, it cannot so, be substantiated at all. No, no part of it can. And I broke this down in my book, actually, when I when I when I wrote about all this stuff. Um, because my book's not a memoir, it's a critical analysis of this shit, right? So I had to dive into all of this, not having been exposed to it in the church. I learned about all of this after I left. And I got all this, I got all the scriptures, all the stuff, because it's all on the internet. And and confirmed with people who had done it, including my parents, that this was what Hubbard said. And it was this. Yes, that's what he wrote. That's what we read. This this is what we believed. So, so I verified all of it. And it's completely the most pseudoscientific bunch of nonsense you can imagine. None of it holds up. Um, to jump back a second, I, I forgot to ask you, if you don't mind, how much do you think you personally spent in Scientology? Money-wise? Yeah. Uh, actually, not as much as a whole lot of other people. My spending in Scientology was my life. Okay. Was my time, right? Because from the time I was 17 years old, right out of high school, I joined staff. And I worked full-time for Scientology every week from the time I was... Uh, yeah, just about 17. I arrived a couple I started staff a couple months before I was before I turned 18 mm. until I was 42. I worked a minimum of 40 hours a week for Scientology. And then when of course when the Sea Org came along it was more like, you know, uh <laughs> 24 hours a day. But anyway, that's that was my contribution to Scientology. So money-wise as a public person before I joined staff Probably about five or six thousand dollars. Oh, okay. Yeah, not, not as bad as I would have thought. Surprisingly, yeah. although that's still obviously a lot of money. 
it, well, it, it was for me. I mean, I sold my car to do my first courses and stuff. I mean, I was having to pay for myself. And then when I left, they charge you for the services you did. <laughs> if you leave, you know, I broke my contract, right? I didn't stick around for a billion years. No, obviously. <laughs> I had to pay for the services that I had done as a Sea Org member. And I, like I said, I didn't make any progress to OT, but I did do some training and some other classes. So that was another about four, about $4,000, I think for, for that. Okay. Yeah. Um, what is the appeal to the average person in Scientology? Like how, how do they exactly like get people in, get the average person interested? How do they reel you in? Yes. Personal problems, stress, trauma, things you have problems with in your life. We have a toolkit of, you know, philosophical and practical tools that you can apply in your life that will enable you to solve those problems. You will not have them anymore. It's not a matter of coping with them. It's not a matter of learning how to deal with them or learning how to live with it. We will make it go away. So they make the same promises as other religion. You're going to be happy. You're going to be great. You'll have this amazing afterlife. It's just, but it's not, not, but, but the claim is not a faith-based claim. It's not a claim of if you believe the right things, then your life will go better. That is buried in the belief system of Scientology. The whole secret law of attraction thing is very, very much a part of Scientology. But what's offered to you is a practical series of steps. Scientology uh, defines itself as an applied religious philosophy. Okay. Okay. So it's applied. It's something you do. They, they stress this all the time because it's, because it, it's kind of true. That's, uh, that's, that is how it manifests is you're expected to be using it in your life to solve the problems of your life. And Hubbard lays down all these philosophical principles and, and this sort of tool set to enable you to do that. Um, and the claim is that these things are universal. They're universally true. Every human being works this way. Every person has this kind of mind and it responds the same way to the techniques that we use. And that's where Hubbard's claims go completely off the rails because that's not true at all. Okay. Um, what needs would you say are different from a person leaving Scientology versus leaving Christianity? Mm. Um, in terms of needs, they're quite a bit different. Um, you know, pastoral counseling in Christianity is there's no pretense about it. You're having talks with your minister or your priest. Right. There's never any elevated ideas that you're doing something else than having a conversation, and he's going to give you some advice, or he might counsel you a bit, right, from a faith-based viewpoint. But it's not like it's magic or woo or or he's you know waving his hand and and taking your pain away from you. Not until you get into the weird evangelical crap, and that's a whole other level of of nonsense which is maybe a little more parallel with the kind of psychological trauma and damage I'm talking about here or leading up to with Scientology. You are put through a, a tremendously varied set of processes. So it's hard for me to summarize it into an easy, you know, to digest sort of thing. But there are the auditing steps that you do in order to climb these levels of indoctrination are rigorous and they are intense. 
Um, they dig deep into you and they demand that you be completely open about every single aspect of your life. Uh, there are no secrets from Scientology, period. Uh, you will never climb these levels if you are holding back. Um, and if you and you and you also can't climb these levels if you don't believe in the the efficacy, the workability of this e meter, okay. this electronic device that is used, which is which lends this you know air of of science to what they're doing. The, the claims of Scientology are not faith claims; they are factual claims. They claim that you have this part of your mind that is a very real thing. It's not just something you're making up or framing your brain a certain way. There is this energy mass and it exists and we have to erase it. We got to get rid of it. And auditing does that and this meter shows it. And so there's this whole very involved set of beliefs that you're buying into. And, you, and there's a whole worldview connected with that that you start looking at people through this lens of seeing what's wrong with them, according to L. Ron Hubbard. And he's got all kinds of explanations for what's wrong with people. Oh, of course. So you get a very skewed view of reality. See, Christianity isn't going to give you that. Christianity, in its, in its simplicity, is a surrender and faith-based idea that you're going to you know, give over to this higher power and you're going to acknowledge its greatness and you're going to ask it for forgiveness because, you know, man is basically born into sin and you're going to get forgiveness and you're going to get grace and you're going to live forever under the, you know, grace of God. And isn't it a wonderful thing? Very simple idea. Not particularly psychologically damaging to believe something like that. You can get over that belief or you can embrace it. It's, you know... Uh, depending on how far down the rabbit hole you go with that, you can get into fundamentalism and evangelicism and some pretty crazy practices. So I'm not saying it's free from those influences, but you don't have to go that route in order to be a Christian or have a Christian experience. As a Scientologist, everyone has to experience the things I'm describing. You, okay. you, don't, you don't do these levels without experiencing this. And, and auditing is a form of, in its most basic, sort of description or synopsis is a form of hypnotism. They are hypnotizing you. They're putting you into trance states and they are using pre and post hypnotic suggestion to create different mental states. And that's tinkering with your mind in ways that you didn't really give them permission to do because you don't really understand what they're doing to you. You're given a whole different set of explanations for what's being done to you. So they're essentially tricking you. Fact, you know? So they're essentially tricking you the whole time. Very much so. Very much so. There is a ton of deception involved in all of this. And a very involved, you know, there's the cosmology, which is odd enough. Right. But then there's this whole theory of mind and spirit and a ton of material where Hubbard goes into deep minutia about all this stuff and how you think and why you think and how you control your body as a spiritual entity using energy beams that you're not even aware of. And, you know, there's a, there's, it's a, there's a deep involved uh, sort of belief system here. And Scientologists don't think of it as a belief system. They believe they are learning facts as real as biology or neuroscience or physics. That's how they think of it. They don't think of it as a religion. 
Okay. So that's a whole nother level of deception there. So that's why um, people who come out of a group like Scientology have such psychological needs, you know, that they, that, that, that counseling would be very, very good uh, for people coming out of that. I've gotten counseling and it's really helped. Um, I've also gotten a lot of it self-education and that's <laughs> even more. <laughs> so, you know, I always recommend education as their, as your first line of attack against this of kind course. of thing too. So, yeah. Um, real quick, how does the e-meter work exactly? It's a, um, excuse me, it's a uh, psychogalvanometer. Uh, it measures skin resistance. And the theory in Scientology is that skin resistance is caused by energy masses generated by you as a spiritual being or your mind, which is basically a ball of energy. Um, and that is what creates the resistance to the electrical impulse that's going over your skin. And uh, what you do is you hold these these cans, right? You got you got cans, they're electrodes, and they're plugged into the meter, and an electric current goes over your body, goes through the cans, over your skin. It doesn't pierce your skin. It's not going through your body. It's not a heavy enough electrical impulse to do that. It can't break your skin. But your skin's really conductive. And the more you sweat, of course, the more conductive it is. The changes in your parasympathetic nervous system cause changes in skin resistance and micro changes in your muscles increase and decrease the amount of contact with the cans, which also creates changes in skin resistance. So the needle on the dial of the meter is registering that change in skin, in in electronic resistance. And really, it's just measuring that. That's really all it's doing. But Hubbard, again, wrote a very complicated, very involved um, series of interpretations of of the needle and the positioning of the dials to indicate various mental phenomena that are supposed to indicate when you're getting deep into the process and when you're done with the process. And those are the things that the people who learn about the meter and use it, I did, um, that's what you learn about. And then you interpret the needle through how L. Ron Hubbard told you to. So if the needle, you know, does this, if you say, you know, hey, think of an apple, and the needle moves, you assume the person just thought of an apple and you go, what do you uh, mean? Okay. So you're, you're asking questions with the meter, like, let's talk about the confessionals for a minute. You might ask a question on the meter. Have you ever stolen anything from work? Bang. Oh, what's that? Assuming he stole something from work. Even when he didn't, and he just had a a, a reaction, just That's kind right. of kind of like a lie detector. It doesn't actually work. That's right. It's a, in fact the e meter is a fancy rig that really, in for all intents and purposes, is one third of a polygraph machine. Because poly- as we know, those are not accurate. No, they're <laughs> accurate. They have no basis in science whatsoever. And this is going back, you know, to the 1800s. Young messed around with this, and he abandoned it because he went, yeah, this is all just a bunch of crap. (laughs) 
Heart Association and stuff with early psychogalvanometers, right? They would hook people up and they thought this was all the rage and electronics was going to help usher in a new age of psychology and stuff. And it fizzled really hard. And then Hubbard picked it up in the 50s and said, yes, this is what we must do. And so they they created this meter and went to town with it. And the power of the meter is that it lends credibility to Hubbard's scientific claims for people who are, you know, scientifically illiterate, like <laughs> I was. I mean, I'm just going to say it. I was definitely, you know. Um, and you can buy into this stuff, right? Because it's electronic. It's got dials and gizmos and things. Like, it must be real. It's measuring right. something, you know. Yeah, it's measuring something. <laughs> Don't know what, but something. Not what you think it is. <laughs> <laughs> So. Um, did a not back, I believe it was 2008 when anonymous, uh, went after Scientology. Yep. Did they have, or how much of an impact did they have on Scientology? Huge. It was big. I was on the RPF during that time. And even I knew they were protesting. And like I said, we were sequestered away from the rest of the crew. Wow. And I mean, we knew, I mean, it was bad. They were surrounding our buildings. They were doing these protests and it went on for like a year. I mean, it was impressive. Um, that really marks 2008 is the year that marks when Scientology became exposed as a truly abusive group, not just some odd UFO cult up until 2008 people really didn't get Scientology. They thought it was Tom Cruise's little pet project or some kind of weird thing that makes Tom act weird or South Parky crazy beliefs, but it's really no different than Christians or Catholics or something. And 2008 is when the real inside skinny started coming out because Anonymous dug deep and all of the people who had come out of Scientology prior to that who, had, who the church had trashed, I mean, sued out of existence, ruined their lives as per church policy. But those people had managed to get enough information on the internet that Anonymous could look at it and go, oh my God, we have to leave that's this. what this is about, right? Because they read the testimonials and they read the, you know, the, the, the survivor stories of these people who had escaped Scientology and no one had really been taking them seriously. It had been in a media report here or there, but it was random. It was totally rando as to whether Scientology was going to get any coverage. And up until 2008, Scientology had been so litigious that nobody wanted to touch them because they knew it was going to be a multi-million dollar investment because right. Scientology is going to come after you, whether you tell the truth or not. Well, I mean, they took on the government or sorry, they took on the IRS they and did. they won. So yep, they that, that should show you they have a pretty significant resolve when it comes to they'll, they'll go after anybody. Yeah. You know, and they're, they're sadly, they seem to win more often than not. Well, and that is sad. And it has, and that's more a statement of the inequities of our justice system than it is Scientology's cleverness. They simply buy the best lawyers. And I do mean the best. They spare no expense on legal. Are they, the lawyers all Scientologists? Or will no, they actually, okay. No, they go hire the best lawyers. They have in-house lawyers. They have lawyers in Scientology who are Scientologists who have done really dirty stuff over the decades. But when they need to bring the big guns, because none of their lawyers are big guns. They're not, okay. they, they're not the guys who get you know the $1,000 an hour fees. Right. And when Scientology needs that, they get it. And those guys will those guys it will work for a paycheck, right? They, they park their moral compass. They're not, they're not crusaders or activists. 
So they work for Scientology and they provide, you know, holding tactics, delaying tactics, every dirty trick they can push legally to, you know, wear down their opposition or just make them spend money just because they're being vindictive. They'll do it. They got no scruples when it comes to legal. Um, so what do, let's say someone off the street, or I don't want to say off the street, let's say I go to, you know, a Scientology center uh, and I say, Larry, I, I have no money, but this fascinates me. Like, I, I would like to be a part of it. Mm -hmm. is, is it just no? Like, like do they no. accept people without, like, people no, who are you might have money tomorrow. <laughs> you see? So okay. they're not going to just kick you to the curb. Um, kind of depends on how you look, though. Okay. Kind of depends on your on your look and attitude. Do you have a job? Are you a homeless person? That th those guys are getting kicked out straight away. We, we, we know, we're not interested in that at all. But if you have resources, see, do you have parents? Do you have a college fund? Do you have savings? Do you have a credit card? Right down the list. Uh, what can we do? Right. So the idea is to get you motivated enough to get you to solve the money problem. You go figure it out. But. This is, you know, but you, but we want to make you want it so much that, that you'll find a way to pay them sleep until you figure it out. Right. Wow. Yeah. What are, what would you say, or can you say, what are the positives of Scientology? Yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's not like I haven't been asked this question before. And I have said that it provided, you know, me with better communication skills and, you know, maybe a, maybe an elevated work ethic. That's for sure. Uh, I tell you, man, when I got out of Scientology, I, you know, you still keep going at that pace for quite a while. That's how I was able to crank out a shitload of videos real, you know, like over a fairly short period of time. Uh, I've since learned to relax. You know? <laughs> I value my free time now. Right. I, I didn't used to have it. There were that concept was alien to me, right? Free time. What? What are you talking about? Um, so, you know, so it's a little hard for me now to look back at that and go, yeah, those were really great things, right? Um, the, the truth is that, that I've been able to reassess a lot of things that I used to assign to Scientology and realize that that actually wasn't Scientology. Um, my ability to communicate is something I've had since I was a very little child. I, I was an excellent reader and I was somebody who liked to show off that way and I was a talker. I mean, you can tell I talk, you know. Yeah, that's okay though. This is honestly... This has made this because I only I didn't even get to all the questions. So this has made this way easy because you just go and I absolutely love that. <laughs> cool. I, I I sometimes worry because I I do tend to talk a lot, but I've always been that way. I was that way from first grade. Teachers used to write me up for this, right? It used to be a problem. Um, so Scientology didn't really create that in me. What it did was it was it did give me practical experience in focusing on certain communication skills that did improve the ability. Right. But I could have gone to Toastmasters and gotten that <laughs> too. You know, and I and I and I'm really not joking, right? So right. um, you know, Hubbard's bullshit about communication, I had to unlearn all that stuff in order to kind of get what works and doesn't work. Um 
same thing with the knowledge about inner human, interpersonal relations and stuff. It's like, yeah, there's some interesting bits of advice there. Some of it very common sense. Some of it a little interesting. But, you know, again, he's, he's giving you this knowledge as though this is universally applicable. All humans follow this formula. Everybody responds this way. And I have come to learn that that is absolutely not true. And, you know, there is no such thing as a one-size-fits-all therapeutic approach to human beings. Not under all different. No, not the way we understand the mind and life right now there isn't. Maybe in some future, you know, we'll, we'll pop something with the neuroscience or we'll learn a whole nother level of life that, that we're involved in. Um, I'm fascinated, for example, by group mind and the way we operate in groups and that there's a kind of life there. I'm, I'm fascinated by that. Uh, Hubbard never delved into any of that stuff. He was not really that clever. But, um, but sociology and neuroscience are heading us in some pretty interesting directions, right? So maybe someday we will hit on something that we can all sort of tune into or something. I, I'm not even being weird or spiritual. I'm talking science, right? Maybe right. scientifically we will hit on some stuff. But uh, until then, yeah, there's no universally one-size-fits-all applicable method or technique that no. you may but Scientology claims that that's what it is. So, you know, so is there benefit? Yes. Have people gotten real legitimate gain from Dianetics and Scientology? Yes, of course they have. I, you know, I wouldn't have stuck around for 27 years if it was just hell the whole time. Such a long time. You know, yeah, of course. Come on. I helped a lot of people. I helped salvage marriages. I helped get people off drugs who wanted to be off drugs. I helped kids learn stuff. I did a lot of good work for people, but most of that work, you know, in retrospect, and this is not, I can't say that I'm objective on this topic. Of course, I can't say that. I never right. would be able to say that. But I have also had seven or eight years out of it to reflect and recover from it enough that I have gained some degree of objectivity that I didn't used to have. Okay. And I think as time goes on, that will become more and more true because you know you gain more perspective on it and so now I, I you know i might be talking from hindsight bias here but i really don't think there was anything i got out of the experience or that anybody else could get out of the experience that they couldn't more easily and more directly get somewhere else without all the curves and the bullshit okay so um if anyone in the comments has any questions, drop them. We're going to be finishing up in a few minutes. Um, what are some uh, misnomers of Scientology? Well, the RPF whole thing was a fairly big one. Okay. The other one is that people at all levels are equally abused, right? Try to break that down and clarify that to show that it's really not that way. The, the abuse that happens at the public levels is mostly financial. They're raping your kid's child fund. They're taking your trust funds. They're, you know, making you take out your third and fourth mortgage on your house and shit, right? To pay for Scientology stuff. So that's the that's the and there and there are some degree of physical punishments that can occur to public, but it's pretty lightweight stuff, you know, cleaning around the building and stuff like that. You know, it's nothing real super serious. There there have been criminal acts committed against public Scientologists. There's been instances of, you know, um, what's it, uh, statutory rape, you know, pedophilia, that kind of stuff. But those are those are individual circumstances more so than a dogmatic effort 
Okay. You know, Scientology is not the FLDS. It's the, it doesn't believe in child brides and, and, and the crap like that. So, so you're not going to see that kind of thing in Scientology. If anything, they're sort of a leave it to beaver kind of sexual morality. It's very missionary and that's it kind of stuff. Um, so that's the public level. They'll intrude in your life. They get in your business all the time. They'll, they'll come knocking on your door at two in the morning demanding money. But that's, that's about the level of nonsense that they get up to there. Okay. The staff, the city-level guys, long nights, you know, sometimes you're up for a couple days. You know, that, that kind of gets a little abusive. Um, of course, all the head games they're playing with you 24-7 because Hubbard's got this whole structure of policy and how his organizations are supposed to run a very exact way. And there's an incredible amount of pressure put on the staff to produce money and cajole their members into doing things to, you know, to, to show that they're producing more every week. The Sea Org is where things get insane. And, and that's the level where most of the abusive stuff that you hear about, that's where it happens. So I always try to take pains to differentiate those things so people can have at least that much nuance in understanding what it's about. Okay. Um, is L uh, Ron, yeah. is Ron Hubbard viewed as some type of deity or God, or is he just viewed as the creator of Scientology? Um, he is revered in the same way that, say, um, a Mahatma Gandhi or a Martin Luther King are revered. They're not considered divinity. I, you know, you'd have to be a little nuts to start thinking of MLK as a, you know, as some kind of God. But, you know, a magnificent example of humanity. You know, somebody who stepped up in a in a in a way that very few do. Okay, that's kind of how Elron Hubbard is viewed—a genius, super genius. You know, the most amazing person who ever lived, kind of guy. But you know, he even took pains to write in his materials. Look, I'm just a guy. You know, um, but at the same time, you know, <laughs> I'm just a guy. But you know. <laughs> yeah. So, if, if he was here right now, what would you either say to him or ask him? <laughs> yeah, this is a this is a funny question, um, but it is a good one. I don't get asked this question often enough. Um, I think if I really had him in the same room as me right now, I, I think I would actually literally start with "What the fuck." <laughs> <laughs> I think at this point, that's pretty much the question I'd start with, right? I mean, if I had a captive audience, I'd, I'd dig into his shit, man. I would not let up. I'd be pretty hardcore with him. I'd be like, dude, what the fuck? <laughs> How did you even think this was okay? How do you even begin to rationalize pawning off this pseudoscience on people, you know? I'd, right. I'd be all over him. That's that's pretty much how I would deal with him at this point. I might and, have different answers in the past, but that's my answer right now. And what about uh, David Miscavige? And, and if you don't want to comment, I totally respect that. No, pretty much the same thing. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, pretty much the same thing. I I would love an opportunity to take on Miscavige. Um, I would love to see that, man. Oh, I would love to see that. Because you know yeah. your shit. Yeah, that'd be fun. That'd be fun. I would, I'd actually, I, I'd be nervous, but I'd be, but it would be fun. Cause I, I, he doesn't scare me anymore. He's a little man. 
You know, he's this little dude. I mean, it's Sarah, he comes up to here on me. I mean, I'm telling you, the guy's little and and he's kind of tough. You know, he's a tough guy. I'm sure he could, you know. Actually tough or pretend tough where I'm a small no, guy so I'm going to make myself. No, he's oh. actually, no, he's actually a strong guy. He, um, I mean, when he was a kid and stuff, he used to climb uh, the, the side of the Clearwater buildings and shit. I mean, he's, 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 not a, he's not a cowardly person in terms of physical, you know, gumption and stuff. But, okay. but he's a little man with a little tiny ego and a dark heart. And I would love to engage with him in an honest way somehow. I think that would be fascinating. I, and I say it all that, of course, knowing that it I'll will never, never happen that opportunity. He'll never give anybody that opportunity. You know, I, maybe I'm going out on a limb here, but I feel like be, I, I'm an atheist, obviously. I, I, you're a, or sorry, agnostic atheist. You are as well. Yep. I feel like there is a better chance of a God appearing and <laughs> saying, worship me over David Miscavige ever agreeing to an interview. Yes. Is that accurate? Yes. You are correct. <laughs> you are correct, sir. Yes, that is right. He hasn't done an interview since 1998. And the last time he did a televised interview was Nightline, and that was 91. So, yeah. So he just hides in his bunker. So he totally hides. He is a coward, and I have no problem calling him out on that. He's a craven little beast. <laughs> now, fuck David Miscavige. The guy is a coward. If he wants to come out and prove me wrong, please do. That was Please do. I, I, I'm not familiar with Scientology like you are, and I just with the little amount I know, I can say there's never gonna fucking happen. Yeah, no, he'll never do it. Because it's not in his best interest. Why would he? Right. What does he gain by you know taking on critics or or you know going out and defending Scientology? And More all followers. Hubbard's advice on this is crystal clear. The policy of Scientology is always attack, never defend. Always attack never defend that is that is primo high level policy and and miscavige believes in that he absolutely applies that so that's a, such a jackass mentality to have like right. why, I don't know, why? Right. like why do that it's hell ron hubbard that's what i said i was baked into the organization his personality is baked into the organization right um question i uh i got a couple questions from the audience one was um and i'm not seeing it right now it's a little bit earlier um what did you think of leah remini's documentary or I'm leah right. Remini? beautiful uh leah okay leah is exactly what you see on the show that is her um she is my friend I, 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 we are actually real life friends. I've been on the show twice. I was on in the first season and I was on the very last season finale episode. And I was honored to be invited both times. It was amazing. Um, and the show is the, is the best televised version of a breakdown of what Scientology is and what it does to people. Okay. That's what the show is. You know, it's the aftermath. It's 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 what Scientology leaves in its wake. That's that's what the show is. You know, it's not it's not about um, particularly um, trying to show both sides or be an objective view. It is survivors of Scientology talking to survivors of Scientology. If you if you ever see her can, or to talk to her again, can you give her a message for me? <laughs> sure. What's your? <laughs> I've had a crush on her since Saved by the Bell. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, she's kind of awesome that way. Yeah. Yeah, I was pretty uh, pretty gaga over her for a long time. Yeah, I get that. Um, okay, so uh, obvious question. Oh, sorry. Question from, does Chris enjoy his life more now that he's out? Oh, God. <laughs> Absolutely, I do. Absolutely. In fact, there are still times, I was just telling my wife this like a couple of days ago, there are still times where I will have flashes, flashbacks or whatever to, you know, my time in the Sea Org. I was sitting in a basement, you know, pounding on a computer, giving orders to people thousands of miles away all day, every day, hating my life, hating this existence, but feeling like I had to do this because it was the greatest good for the greatest number and I was saving the world. And... um flashing back to that and seeing my life now you know my wife my my little apartment my little slice of freedom that i have here my ability to speak up anytime i want through my youtube channel the fact that i'm a published author now um that i that i say sensible things in a podcast that people actually want to listen to you, I mean, it's amazing you know you offer something very very different like you are Okay, let me put it to you like this. Most people with your knowledge are boring as shit. <laughs> and you yeah. are not. You're exciting. You articulate. You're not just like, and I was in Scientology for this. Like, you're exciting. You're enjoyable to listen to. So that's uh, definitely a positive. Yeah, thank you very much. I enjoy good communication. And yes. uh, I wish we had better science communicators because it's, it's the, you know, science is the most fascinating stuff, but man, you go to science lectures and you're just like, ah, I just want to shoot myself in the first five minutes, you know? <laughs> it is. Uh, and it sucks because it, it shouldn't be like that. Like oh. I crave knowledge, but at the same time, I just can't sit there and be bored out of my mind. Like I, I, I need some excitement, like throw, entertain me while you're educating me. Exactly. Exactly. So I, you know, yeah. And, and this is me. This is who I am. This is how I talk, yeah. how I am in real life. This is just, you know, yeah. So it's, it, it's fun. It's a good time. Um, my, my I, I am so much less arrogant, less conceited, less sure of myself, far less certain than I ever was when I was in Scientology. But I have learned that that's a feature, not a bug. And I used to have it the other way around. It used to be that the certainty was the feature. And now I've learned that the exact opposite is true. And I revel in that. And it, it, it took me a while to accept that, though. That was a hard one. Um, but, but life now is I, I would never, ever, ever go back. There's nothing that could make me go back. What about to any other religion? No, nah, not really interested. Organized religion doesn't impress me. I, excuse me, I... Um, I get the idea with religious belief. I even I, I understand it. I, I empathize with it. Um, I wish I could give over to it sometimes. You know, there is a nice there is a there's a there's a, a a calmness and an acceptance to having that kind of certainty that this is how life runs. You know, that there's a God and I just have to you know give over to Him or something. But I've seen behind too many curtains. For me to go there, I, I you know I've seen I've seen how the sausage gets made. You know I've watched too many people get being taken advantage of too many times for it's me to like, buy into that. It's like when someone you do a magic trick for someone and they're fascinated, they're amazed, but once you show them how it's done, it's like 
oh, okay. Exactly. Like you can't go back to being amazed. Exactly. And that's where I'm at with pretty much every interpretation I've heard so far, uh, Christian or not, you know, and I've gone through, you know, a few dogmas, a few ideas of things about how the, how the world works, uh, Wiccan ideas, you know, I, I know a witch, you know, <laughs> I, I've gone down, you know, the atheist rabbit holes of there's nothing, it all came from nothing. And frankly, that's not super convincing either, you know, and, you, and when you get down to the bottom of it, it's a theory, it's an idea. It's not, you know, it's not like that's any more valid than God, really, at the end of the day. Not not right now, guys. You know, I know people are going to argue about that, but, uh, well, at least it's science. I know, I know. But, you know, when you get to the highest levels, the guys who really know what they're talking about will tell you, because I've talked to them, you know, and they're like, yeah, we don't really get it. We don't really <laughs> our ideas about it you know and, and then they're good ideas we've got i can show you the proofs as to why we think this right. but we're a bit out there in math land right now with this this isn't you know let's let's not over exaggerate the importance right. of what we have what we've got on our hands so so when you go to both ends of that you kind of go mm, not impressed right uh last question comes from best name ever uh does Chris have any advice for the people within Scientology who want to leave? Yes. Run, don't walk. Just get out. Um, I understand that the biggest problem in trying to leave Scientology is the connections that you have. And, and that is understandable. I really get it. Um, and in that case, of course, then you have to sort of slither, not walk or run, right? You're going to have to sneak out. Um there are lots of ways to do it. Every single person, the context within which their lives exist, they have to figure that out. I'm more than happy to help. Um, I'm easily contactable. And I have helped people out of Scientology. I have helped friends and family of people who are stuck in Scientology. And I am more than happy to do that work. So, um, so but yeah, but get out. There, There isn't any long-term or even medium-term benefit. It might look like there's short-term benefit, but but really there's not medium or long-term benefit in staying in a destructive cult. And Scientology is that. Um, all right. So actually one last quick question. I apologize. Uh, or not question the, uh, from the native atheist. He said, uh, do you know the difference between a theory and a scientific theory? Uh, you mean the English definition of theory, like an idea about something versus a scientific theory that's got a hypothesis? I, I think that's what he was, yeah, was getting. Yeah, at. I do understand the difference between those two things. Okay, cool. Um, and then real quick, uh, I just want to, 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 tomorrow, I am hosting the, uh, an atheist roundtable at 7 p.m. Central Daylight Time. We're going to have V. LaBianca, uh, Puck, Kenneth Leonard, the Daily Atheist, and the Godless Engineer all taking place at 7 p.m. Central Daylight Time. So I'm pretty excited to host that. Um, also, uh, if you could like and subscribe, and thank you to my patrons, Trina DeLuca and Cindy Plaza. Um, and then, Chris, where can everyone check you out at? Okay, look me up on YouTube under my name, Chris Shelton, Critical Thinker at Large. Uh, my channel is my name, Chris Shelton. And uh, you can find my book on Amazon as a, a regular book, ebook, or audiobook, which uh, I, I narrated. <laughs> Some people think that's a good idea. Some people didn't think that was a good idea. <laughs> um, but, uh, but mostly positive reviews. Uh, 
and um, and my podcast, the Sensibly Speaking podcast, um, which you can hear every Saturday. Awesome. Well, Chris, uh, don't disconnect, but thank you. You know, th these conversations are the best when literally I, I can just, as I said earlier, ask a few questions and you just run with it. It makes this infinitely easier, uh, way more engaging and fun. So thank you. You're very welcome. All right. Have a good night, everyone.